The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to Scorebox. We are live, of course, from the Ambrosetti Forum here on the shores of Lake Como. And Karen Cho holding the Ford in London. These are your headlines. China stepping up support. Yuan hitting a three-week high after Beijing announces a cut to its FX reserve ratio. Uh, whilst the country's lenders move to further prop up the beleaguered property sector. Legendary economist Joseph Stiglitz tells CNBC multiple indicators are pointing towards more weakness in the Chinese economy as switching from past policies continues to hurt. I don't know if they have the economic leadership uh, to manage their way through this. This is a complicated uh, problem. China hasn't gone through this experience. A long road back to 2%, U.S. monthly inflation figures tick higher, taking Treasury yields along with them as investors now turn their attention to today's crucial non-farm payrolls report. And the Nasdaq ekes out again but closes the month on the back foot as interest rate expectations push the tech-heavy index towards its worst monthly performance of the year. China's central bank says it will cut the foreign exchange reserve requirement ratio, the triple R, by 200 basis points to 4% as it aims to alleviate pressure on the yuan. The change will take place on the 15th of September. The PBOC says the move is aimed at improving banks' ability to use foreign exchange funds, freeing up $16.4 billion worth of FX. Five major Chinese banks also cut deposit rates today in an effort to improve their declining margins. The coordinated cuts range between 5 and 25 basis points. Meanwhile, the PBOC announced it will allow first-time home buyers to apply for a lower interest rate on existing mortgage loans as the government seeks to boost an ailing property sector. Well, I had a fantastic, long and in-depth conversation about a whole host of issues with Joe Stiglitz, of course, the uh, Nobel Prize winner for economics uh, a few years back as well. Uh, and he warned uh, that China may not have the economic leadership required to navigate its way through slowing growth. Now, I spoke to Joseph uh, last evening uh, and asked for his take on the Chinese economy. It's not a surprise, given a series of bad policy mistakes that they've made, that uh, their economy uh, is in very bad shape. And I don't know if they have the economic leadership uh, to manage their way through this. This is a complicated uh, problem. China hasn't gone through this experience. And um, no country has actually gone through, you know, every country is, is different. Um, an analogy may be useful. It used to be said that, you know, uh, China was very special. It was like riding a bike. And if you kept going at 7%, you could stay stable. 
But if it slowed down, there were so many forces, wings blowing in one way or another, that the questions would, were, were, would they be able to keep it going? An example being the way their property sector works. Uh, very interesting getting Joe Stiglitz's take on China there, Karen. But look, there are so many issues here, and you and I have discussed these extensively with all kinds of people all week, in fact, for, for a very long time. There is no doubt about it. Let's be brutally honest about it. China is slowing, and it is slowing precipitously. The days of double-digit growth are gone. The days of the industrialized uh, growth, the agrarian economy going to an industrial economy, you can only get those gains once. We saw it in every economy that's ever industrialized from the British in the late 18th century uh, to the East Asia crisis. And there can be ramifications uh, once you've industrialized and your pace of growth slows dramatically. So what happens here next as well? Well, I've just been looking at a little piece of research that came out just fresh this morning uh, from SG. Uh, and they're just pointing out another aspect on this, which we all know that the China debt situation is grave. They will not escape several years of depressed growth and inflation while it goes through a state driven restructuring. And we still don't have huge amount of detail of what this state-driven restructuring is going to look like, really, or what the fiscal response is going to be, if there's going to be a fiscal response as well. Now, SG is pointing out that this could, though, despite the concerns, actually there could well be contained, um, devastating financial spillovers to other economies and other markets. And that's something we've been talking about. Will there be a huge spillover that creates a global uh, systemic problem as well? And SG is saying, well, actually, some of the bad news is already there as well, and they may be able to contain those spillovers as well. But what is going to be true is that there's going to be an era of lower growth and persistent depreciation pressure on the yuan. For the region, transmission to non-Chinese equity markets in the region where it passed through is going to mean that there's going to be a persistently weaker uh, credit impulse, uh, persistently weaker yuan as well, and a source of bearishness for cyclical industries. So a tempered view there as well, but there is no doubt about it. China and the world has just got to get used to the fact that the days of the growth it had, it's just not going to happen anymore. So then what is plan B? And I think we're still waiting to find out, Karen. A couple of points here around the currency, Steve. If you think about when other countries have economic woes and you see a huge cratering in the currency, just to what extent will China try and step in and defend the currency from that type of scenario? And if you think about how important it has been to the Chinese to have some strength in the yuan, it has been a, a constant point of debate. And at this stage, don't forget uh, the PBOC boss, uh, this is uh, Pan Gongsheng, he has been known for talking up the yuan as a safe haven. And all the conversations in recent months and years, even testing the metal of the US dollar as the reserve currency with the yuan on the rise, supposedly, and all these trade deals that have been cut settling in yuan, does make you wonder whether the Chinese are going to lose any of the gains that they've had even psychologically on global markets around the yuan in recent years with what we're seeing now. So stepping in to defend the currency on the back of all the economic problems we've witnessed is quite key. Key for them. So we're certainly seeing that defence in terms of the FX deposits that have dropped in the past 12 months, down about 14% roughly. And I think the big concern is that we haven't troughed yet when it comes to the Chinese economy. We continue to hear more bad news out of the property sector around Country Garden and some of the other major developers. We continue to 
obviously pressure on the mainland economy at this stage and and that is coming up in so many different quarters even from the data that's not published on the youth unemployment rate so i think at this stage the question is what uh, to what extent can the central bank continue to defend the currency this step today clearly is, is a salvo uh, uh, for the markets but will we see more of those types of measures and to what extent will it actually prop up the currency of these pressures continue steve yeah, all valid points, Karen. But, but, but I think the, the currency is just a symptom of the problem as well. So you know, defending the yuan as well it is not solving the problem. And I appreciate it needs to be done at some stage. Otherwise, it's going to create even uh, bigger problems as well. And, and, and geopolitical issues. And maybe we'll start getting some of those U.S. politicians in the political cycle uh, pointing the finger at too weaker yuan again, of course. And that hasn't been uh, something they've been afraid to do in previous electoral cycles. But the, the symptoms are there. The problem is domestically, isn't it? it, it the gl global growth is slowing down anyway. We know that anyway. So that's a problem for the Chinese exporters. But if the pivot has been to the Chinese consumer and to the Chinese people as well, we have to ask the question, why is that Chinese population refusing to spend its money as well? And, and, the, and the reasons are, are multiple as well. It is very, very concerned, as you pointed out quite clearly there, of what's happened to their property investments uh, whether, or their properties they live in or their property investments. They've had mixed messages over the last couple of years whether they should be investing as well as having their own property as well. They don't have the same kind of social um, safety nets that a lot of other nations have in the West before they've had their slowdown, before other nations have got to a certain level. You and I have talked previously uh, about this phenomenon, the, the, the middle income trap that the Chinese uh, are potentially uh, fallen into as well. I think their, their per capita income is somewhere in the region of $12,800 per person, when the measure for getting uh, above out of uh, those key levels in, into the middle income is above 13800 as well. So they haven't got to the kind of levels they need to get to. Uh, before this growth slows down aggressively and, and persuading the Chinese people to go out and spend more money, to invest more money in the stock market, to actually buy more property as well. It is very, very tough, especially when you add in that point you just raised. The fact that a lot of the young Chinese people have spent a lot of money on their education, but now they can't spend so much, of course, because uh, a lot of the tuition's gone away um, and that sector has been destroyed as well, uh, putting more pressure on the public sector. But the fact is, these amazingly qualified young graduates are coming out, these 16 to 24 year old people are coming out and saying, Actually, they're not finding the jobs they were promised. So then there's potentially, and again, I'm not calling this, I'm saying potentially social ramifications for this uh, for the Chinese Communist Party. Big argument, Steve, that the geopolitics are not helping the de-risking we're seeing from a lot of big corporates in the West away from the factory floor of the world, just uh, adding to some of the pressures that we've been witnessing for the mainland economy. Uh, no surprise, perhaps, that Xi Jinping won't be on the world stage next week. I think it's quite interesting. It's been cited, of course, that Xi Jinping won't be going to the G20 in India, and that uh, reason being cited, the uh, Sino-Indian relationship and uh, just not having the, the welcoming mat rolled out by the West, but also very good platform to avoid uh, where you don't have to produce any answers around what your economy is doing at this stage. So uh, just something to ponder. But uh, we're going to park the conversation there and talk more about China later on the show. Coming up, though, this morning on Squawkbox, save the date. UK chip designer Arm will reportedly kick off its IPO roadshow next week and has set the date for its hotly anticipated Nasdaq listing. We'll be looking at what to expect. Also ahead, Chinese factory activity enjoys some surprise relief, lifting broader Asian markets. But Hong Kong misses out with trading suspended as super typhoon solar approaches will be recapping all the latest market action. 
and we'll be bringing you more coverage from the Ambrosetti Forum on the banks of Lake Como. Steve will be talking to Falco Enterprises CEO Nani Bekali. That is at 8.30 CET. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. A look at Treasury yields, uh, which are ticking higher after notching losses in a choppy U.S. session. Uh, currently this morning, 4.11 on that 10-year and at the short end of 4.86. So we have bumped higher. This after PC inflation data yesterday showed prices rising 0.2% on the month in July, unchanged from June's increase. The yearly figure came in at 3.3% versus 3% in June. Consumer spending jumped 0.8%. That was above expectations. But the saving rate fell to its lowest since November, suggesting that growth might not be sustainable as households draw down their excess savings. JP Morgan has hiked its US GDP growth estimate for the third quarter by a four percentage point to three and a half percent. That is off the back of a 2.1 percent growth rate in the second quarter. Initial jobless claims fell by 4,000 last week to 228,000, 7,000 fewer than analysts had anticipated, Steve. So August non-farm payroll data, well, is it? This is so exciting. You know, we all said we're going to be data-driven. My goodness me, look how we're pouring over every piece of data. And let me put this in context for you. Didn't we all get rather excited in US markets on the back of the jolts data earlier this week as well? Look at the rally we saw when people saw that the number of available jobs dropped a little bit more than expected. So goodness knows what the reaction will be on the back of the payrolls to data today. Plus the fact we're at the start of September, so some people roll over at the start of the month, don't they? So maybe there'll be some interesting positioning. But anyway, look, so we've got the payrolls data, and some people are saying it could mark a turning point after months of labour market tightness. Economists are looking for in aggregate, some in the region of 170,000 jobs gained. And now that would mark the smallest uptick since 2020. And as I say, it comes after that Tuesday jolts data showed the smallest number of job openings in more than two years. As I said to you earlier, uh, I spoke to the Nobel laureate uh, economist Joseph Stiglitz. And we, we, we had a, a, a terrific wide-ranging conversation last night. But I also listened to what he'd been saying to me off camera about a potential misdiagnosis of the economy, a misdiagnosis of the economy. Now, we can all misdiagnose. Uh, the investment banks can misdiagnose. I can misdiagnose. But if you're the Federal Reserve, and if you're the ECB, and if you're the Bank of England, if you misdiagnose, what's that going to mean? Well, he thinks there is a potential misdiagnosis of the economy by the Fed and other central banks. Listen in. The Fed thought the source of the inflation that began in the post-pandemic era uh, was excess demand. And you could understand why they may have thought that if they 
didn't do their homework. <laughs> I mean, it was really bad economics because they saw that the government had passed this enormous recovery program, and if all that money had been spent, it would have been inflationary. But there, you have to remember back just a few years ago, there was an enormous amount of uncertainty. And because of that uncertainty, firms weren't investing and consumers weren't, uh, were saving. And you can see the data on, on savings accounts piling up. And when you put it all together and you look what actually happened to demand, total demand, we call aggregate demand, it was below trend. It was below what, what it had been forecast in before the pandemic happened. Why was there inflation? Well, we all know the reason. Car prices in the beginning went way up. Why? Was it because we didn't know how to make cars? No, we knew how to make cars. American auto companies forgot to put in orders for chips. <laughs> and for want of a chip, <laughs> you can't make a car. So, Joe, just let me get this right. You're basically saying that there's economic incompetence at the Federal Reserve, the most important central bank on the planet. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I, I would say, uh, I put it a little softer than that. What I would say is um, they were in a difficult job of diagnosis. There were some complications. Let me explain. Um, there were some areas, sectors, places where there was a shortage from excess demand. And even in the case of cars, you could have said, well, if nobody demanded cars, we wouldn't have in car inflation. But of course, if you wanted to kill the demand for cars, you'd have to kill income. <laughs> and that's not a solution. It's quite an assessment, isn't it? And, uh... Yeah, we talked about transitory and that as well. So how much was transitory? How much was fairly transitory? How much was actually inbuilt in the system as well and needed alleviating by the central banks? But I thought what Joe had to say that was absolutely fascinating about where the real demand was, the aggregate demand compared with the concerns of the Federal Reserve. Anyway, let's move on because uh, we also talked about politics and I'll just give you a little insight. I, I hosted a couple of Chatham House rules, so I can't tell you the details, uh, panels last night. And one of them, I gave this uh, group of Italian businessmen and women, um, a hall for and an audience for on, on video conference as well, the opportunity to ask any questions uh, about anything globally to my, to my guests who I was on the panel with, who I was moderating. Uh, and, you know, every single question throughout the entire panel was about the U.S. and about the U.S. economy and about the U.S. political leadership. So everybody is already glued to this political circus, can I call it that, that's going on in the States and will go on until November next year. And at the centre of that, of course, uh, is the ringmaster, is Donald Trump. Let's be honest about it. He's still box office in the States. So Donald Trump, as we all know, has pleaded not guilty to election fraud and racketeering in Georgia. Trump's lawyers submitted the plea in writing while notifying the court that the lead GOP candidate, he is the lead by a long shot for next year's presidency, will not be appearing in person for a scheduled arraignment next week. The former US president is facing four charges over alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. 
Uh, Joe Stiglitz uh, says political and market watchers should be, quote, very concerned by the gains made by the Trump campaign in the lead up to the 2024 election. If you look at the most likely scenarios, the most likely scenarios is, scenario is that Trump will be the Republican candidate, even though he is clearly guilty of some of the charges, probably all the charges. I'll just add here, Joe, innocent until proven guilty. You could go through each of the cases. The evidence is overwhelming. In some of the cases, there may be some legal litigation. You know, did the statute of limitations expire on the business records case? But that's not a question. Of so Trump way ahead in the... Uh, the process to find a Republican candidate as well. He almost certainly will at the moment, Caterus Paribus, be the Republican candidate in the general election for the presidency as well. How concerned should we be that this is actually going to be an outcome that could actually put Mr. Trump in the White House and yet at the same time be subject to these various judicial processes? The polling says it's close. And... One has to understand the elect American's electoral process. It's uh, not a majority system. Uh, Trump became the president uh, in 2016 with a distinct minority of the votes. He lost by three million. So it wasn't even close. But uh, a few people shifting their votes in key states enables a minority candidate to become president. Uh, it was a more outrageous version of what happened in 2000, uh, but uh, it's the second uh, time in the century that a minority candidate became the president of the United States. So the reality is that there is a, I don't want to say 50-50, some people actually say it's more than 50-50. I'm not there yet, because I believe there's a little bit more rationality in American voters. Final question. But you can't, you can't put the possibility aside. It is a very serious possibility with enormous consequences for the United States and for the whole world. Yeah, what an 18 months we're all going to have looking at this as well. In fact, it's less than that now, isn't it? It's about 14 months as well. So look, so that's the, the, the politics, which is without doubt at the epicenter of everything that we're all going to be talking about on CNBC uh, for a very, very long time. Uh, of course, there are other major issues going on as well. Uh, and the markets are all trying to absorb that at the moment. But what is fascinating, what looked like a really horrible uh, August Arabile for these U.S. markets, less horrible after what's been a really solid week, despite some, some minor declines in the last 24 hours. Good to see you. Steve, 100%, right? Uh, some might even question whether the bulls might be back in business, but it wasn't so much the case yesterday. We did have a fifth uh, day of gains for the NASDAQ, which did manage to inch out a few gains. But unfortunately, the Dow Jones Industrial and S&P 500 closed off in the red then for the month of August. And overall, then, we did see losses across the month for these, right? But let's just focus in on yesterday precisely. Then you had the lights of Salesforce mitigating some of the losses then for the Dow Jones, which dipped off around half a percent. That does come after it put out uh, those Q2 numbers and Q3 guidance numbers as well. Then that share uh, rose around 3% then for the software company.
both of those uh, estimates also exceeding expectations for analysts. So really providing some sense of positivity. Uh, perhaps the Dow Jones then uh, taking in a little bit of that. Trade has also sifted through those PCE numbers then. Uh, that 4.2% figure coming out there showing a cooling price increase uh, in the sense there. Overall for the end of the month then, this is what we're pretty much looking at. It has been a tumultuous month uh, for stocks. We had been down more than 5% at some stage, but perhaps only survival here. 2.36% then for the Dow Jones Industrial, 2.17% as well for uh, the Nasdaq. Some of the laggards here for the month, Fortinet losing more than 22.5%. Datadog, even JD.com, nearly 20% down across the month. So negativity certainly for the month of August across all these indices, which had actually been worse for wear, managing to pick up by the close of the month. Onto your Treasuries picture then. U.S. Treasuries had been sliding yesterday in what was that choppy trading picture. Of course, a lot more influence being taken in from the uh, jobless claims numbers, which have fallen again. Plus, you then saw that PCE number come to the fore, which had been fairly interesting. The two-year dipping even further, 4.8618. We had seen it above that 5% mark, uh, especially during the middle of the month of August as we kick off a new month now. 4.22 for the 30-year, but the 10-year is 4.11. It was even at 408 yesterday at some point. On to the dollar crosses very quickly. Picking up yesterday was the pound, or was the dollar, should I say, then even moving 1%, 1.7% higher for the month of August in particular. U.S. consumer spending, of course, increasing as well, uh, which uh, was the highest for six months in July. That's up 0.8%. Overall, though, there is still some juice left in the dollar, even though for now you are seeing perhaps a little bit of it uh, fade away. Pretty much flat stance, 126.66 there for the sterling against the dollar. So what are we looking forward to then for the open market today as we head to that open? Marginally on the yup is the picture there. Investors coming off what was, of course, that mixed session. Wall Street closing out a month that saw losses for all three indices. Non-farm payrolls is up next. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.